All right, as we come back together and find our seats, grab a Bible, open up a Bible app, do something to wake yourself up. The kids are with us. Hi, guys. Can I give you like some pro tips? The best way to listen to my sermon is listen with your ears and watch with your eyes. And you'll be way less bored if you grab a Bible. So we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke today. So those of you guys who have learned your books of the Bible, we're in the Gospel of Luke. If you want a cheat code... Uh, the Bibles that are under the seats, the black hardback Bibles, we're on page 856. And that's for anybody, not just kids. You can cheat with that as well. So we're in Luke chapter 1, verse 57. Luke 1, verse 57. One of my boys heard I was coming up to teach and said, it's going to be a long time. <laughs> and I have trained him well. <laughs> You've all gotten the training. We are in Luke chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 57 and go through verse 79 today. I read an article this week um, by a pastor who implored pastors not to get cute. Um, don't try to make stuff up on Christmas Sundays. Uh, he, he made this point that if you were um, a preacher for 40 years and you did Advent every year, you'd have somewhere in the neighborhood of 160 Christmas sermons <laughs> preached. Um, and the admonition to all of us, not just the preacher, but the listener, the Bible reader, the Christian, is that we can get familiar with this stuff and write it off or think arrogantly that we know and we've plumbed the depths. Um, I'm looking at some uh, in the room who've been on this earth for quite a while. Um, anybody read the Bible in 2022 and learn something new? Wow, you didn't know it already? Incredible. That's what we're going to try to do uh, today in Luke chapter 1. We're going to set it up for Christmas morning next Sunday. So let's go ahead and read Luke 1, 57 through 79. And then we'll pray and we'll dive into it. Luke 1, verse 57. And the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. He asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. 
And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. There's a lot there. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us this morning. Father, we need your help to understand your word. We can read the subjects and the verbs and the pronouns and the sentences, but Lord, without your Holy Spirit, it might go in one ear, out the other. It might not filter down to our heart. It might not be the power that you want for us from your word. So we pray today that you'd help us to listen. Lord, um, a bunch of people here are tired. They were here last night pretending to be Jewish people from the first century. Lord, I pray that you would give us the endurance, perseverance this morning to hear from your word. Thank you for your kindness and your grace to us this Christmas time. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to imagine going to Ukraine this week or Lebanon or East Congo or gang-controlled portions of any major city in the world. What would you see? What could you do? What could you even offer? What if you went to one of these war-torn places confidently walking down the empty, bullet-ridden streets offering an incredible offer to the people huddled in their homes, the ones that weren't blasted apart, surrounded by craters. What if you gave them the news? You know, everyone, I've got the New York Times front page from a few days ago. It's mostly updated. Uh, Would you like to hear me read it to you? No, that's not what they're looking for, right? Put yourself in that position. You've lost loved ones. There are rockets flying all the time, sirens going off. People that you know and love have died. Your uncle, your brother, someone is gone because they're fighting. How might your reading of the news in the street be taken by those longing for freedom and health? and peace, and a bit of normalcy. The news? Maybe insensitive? Perhaps mean? Maybe a sick joke? Is this a stunt to get on social media? What is this? This is something that we should consider when we read the stories in the Gospels of the Christmas story. We are not talking about the center of any empire, We're talking about a normal corner of the world. We're talking about something that happens every day in homes and hospitals all over the place. A baby is born. That's not abnormal. That happens all the time. So when we're speaking of something we're familiar with, when we're taught something we're familiar with, when we're watching or reading the thing that we know, sometimes we forget to engage our imaginations and to consider what is happening in the text of the Bible. That's one of the reasons why our living nativity is so helpful for many people. Because it's putting flesh on. It's helping them to see. It's, it's maybe helping them use their imaginations. Now let's be very clear. We don't need the living nativity for people to be saved. 
we're, we're living nativity is a vessel for the gospel of Jesus Christ to be proclaimed. But in using our imaginations, maybe we're helping people go back to the text and read. Rather than check it off a list, go down and read words that go into our brain, maybe in one ear, out the other. We can use our imaginations, consider what it must have been like. Can you imagine? Well, let's try that and just turn the page, or maybe you don't need to turn the page, but back to the first verses of Luke's gospel. It might be on the the opposite page. It might be a few pages back, but look at Luke because we're starting at the end of chapter one. And and yes, it's Christmas, um, but probably most of us can't quote verses one through 56 right now if I called on you. So let's take take a look and just see what has gone before. Really briefly, what has gone before? After Luke's introduction, telling why he's writing what he's writing, he places us in a context in the days of Herod and the king of Judea. He introduces us to characters. And if we are familiar with the scriptures, if we are familiar with the Old Testament at all, we see a barren couple, and immediately we should think, aha, I've read this story before. They're too old to have a baby. I know where this is headed. This sounds like the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, whose wives all struggled with infertility in various ways. Hannah could not have a child. And there's others throughout the Old Testament. When we see a barren couple talked about in this much detail, and it tells us that it's impossible for them to have babies, and we've read the book from the God of the impossible, it's a little bit of a tip-off of what's coming. Now we see Zechariah, who's a priest, he's go, he goes into the temple because that's part of his job every once in a while. And it's almost like Zechariah seen a ghost. He comes out of this time in the temple where he was doing special but routine work in the temple. And he comes out and he cannot speak. He cannot speak at all. He has a confrontation with an angel, which he's able to finally tell them. Now this is out of the ordinary. An angel shows up. Not only that, but the angel gives him some interesting news telling him about a miracle son with a special ministry future. Zechariah can't believe it or doesn't believe it. The consequence is he can't speak, but he knows what this angel has said to him. We see Soon after, his wife Elizabeth, too old to get pregnant, too old to have a baby, is indeed pregnant. We then change scenes, and from the the very old, we go to the very young, and we meet a a girl, young woman named Mary, who also has a run-in with a supernatural being, who also tells her that she's going to have a baby in a miraculous sort of way, the opposite miraculous way, of her cousin, Elizabeth. Mary is told this great news about the baby that she's going to have, what the baby is going to be, this boy who he's going to grow up to be. She speaks those great words, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Can you imagine saying that to that amount of news? Overwhelming. So then Mary hears about Elizabeth and says, We've got something in common goes and visits with Zechariah and Elizabeth, and we get uh, the first meeting of the two cousins while in utero, one reacting to the other, 
sidebar, an amazing opportunity to think about what that means for pro-life convictions. Mary then breaks out in song. In Latin, it's called the Magnificat. Very famous song that Mary sings. And that leads us to our text. That's what's gone before. So what do we see here? Well, point number one in your notes, we see a merciful and faithful God keeps his promise to an old couple. A merciful and faithful God keeps his promise to an old couple. He said that he would do it, and he has. He is showing great mercy, verse 58 says. He follows through. Can you imagine the doubts that would have plagued Elizabeth and Zechariah? Especially at the beginning, when she's not showing. Is this really going to happen? Can this really happen? How would you regulate the anxiety and the emotions that came with that at such an old age? And yet, here comes a baby. Good timing. Wow, sound effects are great. So realistic. (laughs) God's mercy is shown to her, and her neighbors see it, her relatives see it. And there's a great scene in verse 58 of them all coming to have a party. What, What a baby shower that would have been. Well, as... Elizabeth and Zechariah receive this gift from the Lord. They follow through with obedience. So point number two is an old couple obeys God and is blessed. They follow through and obey the Lord. They're Jewish. So this baby boy needs to be circumcised on the eighth day. And apparently at this time, the naming ceremony happened at the circumcision. So this was a community event, if you can imagine. It brought everyone in for this big party. And they have this naming ceremony as part of it. What's suspense? What's the name going to be? Well, the name has already been told to Zechariah. Because God didn't leave this one up to chance. He told the angel to tell Zechariah, you're going to name your son John. Trick question. I was hoping someone would say Jesus. Okay. We're awake-ish. So... John is going to be the name. Now, that's, that's odd because there doesn't seem to be any Johns in that family tree. I don't know how it works in your family, how important this is, or how creative we are in our time with how to spell names and what kind of names actually make sense in English. But we have a name from outside the family tree. Now, it's not an uncommon name. So it's not like no one was named John. We'll see that in our Bibles very clearly. A couple of Gospels later and in the Gospels we see Several Johns. John means Yahweh is gracious. An apropos name for this little baby boy. What does his name mean? It means gracious. What shall his name be? It'll be John, not Zechariah, or not anyone else's from the family tree. And the people seem to push back. The community says, none of your relatives is called by this name. And apparently, Zechariah, over the months, has lost his ability to hear because they start making signs to him. Um, They're trying to get him to understand. He grabs his Samsung, I mean his tablet, and he takes a look, and he writes on it with his stylus, and he says, in obedience to God, right? Not in defiance of his neighbors, but in obedience to God. No, he shall be called John. That's his name. His name is John. 
And there's a wondering that occurs. Look at that in verse 63. They all wondered. Consider that this is a normal place with normal people. Something is happening. Something, someone is stirring. And we'll talk about what that meant to these people in a few minutes here. Well, they all wondered about this, and it sounds similar to what Mary does, where she treasures all these things in her hearts. And in early, early chapters of Luke, everyone's thinking about what this means. What does it mean for the people of God? What does it mean for the Jewish people? Look at verse 65 and 66. This is point number three. The stage is set for something new. So something that's very normal is actually setting the stage for something new. What is going to happen? Well, the first thing that we see is that fear came on all of their neighbors. So the neighbors are wondering, and they're also afraid. So we have to talk about that a little bit, right? Like, no one walked in and saw the baby and went, ah! <laughs> I, I, we don't get any news about, you know, the baby being somewhat ugly or anything to frighten the people. But they're afraid. What does that mean? They're in fear. They know that something is happening, and they sense that God is in it. And throughout the scriptures, when God is near or a messenger from God is near, how do people respond over and over and over and over and over again? Fall down. Sometimes they lose consciousness. They tremble. And usually the instruction from this being is, don't be afraid, which is actually hilarious. Because if a supernatural being being showed up in your house today... Let's just say it would be a terrifying event. So the angel has told them what has happened. They have told the story to those who have heard. In, its, in itself, it's an amazing miracle that this woman who could not have a baby has had a baby and the stage is set for something new. Not only were they afraid, but they started talking about it. When they went to the market, when they went to their relatives' homes, when they met on the street, everyone in the hill country of Judea is talking about it, which sounds amazing. But people talking about it in the hill country of Judea is maybe a few hundred people talking about it. This is not earth-shattering. Right? This is not happening in Rome or even Caesarea on the coast. It's not happening um, in a massive city. So we have this amazing thing happening in a very normal place. When they begin to talk about it in verse 65, they're talking about it as they meet. In verse 66, all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? Pressure. Everyone in the region is watching this kid, right? Oh, he, he is 13 months and he's not walking yet. <laughs> Three years old, I can't understand a word that kid says. I don't think this is going to happen. Can you imagine the pressure on little John? Hopefully his neighbors did a good job of not heaping that on him. But you imagine Elizabeth and Zechariah feeling that, watching this. How would you watch a miraculous boy grow up? How would, you, how would you watch him? How would you watch him when he went to synagogue and heard the words of the prophets spoken? How would you watch him when he interacted with others? How would you watch him when he interacted with others in a way that's not so kind? What if he was just plain normal? What then will this child be? And this great phrase at the end of 66. For the hand of the Lord 
was with him. That means they knew. They knew, they could sense, they could see, they could tell, they could remember. Something told them the hand of the Lord was with him. Now, as we move on, verse 67 pivots to another song. Mary's song in the beginning of the chapter is called the Magnificat, because she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Zechariah's prophecy, his song here is called Benedictus, because it starts with blessed be. He's giving a blessing to the Lord. Um, The Greek word is related to our word for eulogy, a, a good word. A benedict is a good word, okay? So a good word is given, a good speech is given. And one scholar called this song the last prophecy of the old dispensation and the first of the new. That's a bridge between the old covenant, the old testament, the new covenant, the new testament. And not only are we supposed to see in this prophecy maybe some things that are to come and will happen, but we also see some foretelling. Forth telling. Did you hear that? Uh, we hear prophecy and we're like, yeah, juicy details, all kinds of crazy stuff. We're thinking about revelation and end times. And that certainly is the case throughout the scriptures. But more often than that, prophecy is the speaking of the words of God to his people. Not merely in a predictable sort of way. And so let's take a look at this song. Let's look at it briefly and then let's talk about what the message is titled today and think about what it means to expect, to want, what you want in a savior, in a rescuer, in someone who is coming in to bring salvation. So Zechariah in verse 67, look at this. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He prophesied and he says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. An important, important phrase, which occurs several times Throughout the Old Testament, Psalm 41, Psalm 72, Psalm 106, 1 Kings chapter 1 on the lips of David. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Why? He has visited and redeemed his people. Now that reminds us of Exodus. God sees his people suffering in Egypt and he doesn't stay away. He visits. He comes near. He comes close. Like great passage, it says, God knew and he heard and he was there. He was with them. So Zechariah is so sure of this that in verse 68, he gives the past tense. Visited, redeemed, past tense, as if it's already happened. It's so certain that God keeps his promises that they know that God will do it. Now that is an amazing thing. That is an amazing thing because their great, 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 great grandparents had received the prophecies of Haggai, Zechariah, of Malachi, and were waiting. And none of them saw the fulfillment. In fact, all of them didn't know a prophet. There were no more prophets coming. So the fact that God has visited is an extremely important thing. Think of the power of a visit. Think of a time you've been in the hospital. Think of a time when you've visited someone in a hospital. Think of sometimes when you go visit long-lost relatives, someone who's moved far away. The visiting is so important. It's in person. We think about all that we've gone through in the last several years with COVID and what it meant to be socially distant and to not meet in this very room for weeks and weeks. 
the importance of God visiting and redeeming his people. What has he done? Verse 69, he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Well, now this is important. David is mentioned. The house of David. What is he talking about? He's talking about some structure. Oh, that's David's house. What like the windows. They're looking good. New, new paint. I'm not talking about a physical structure. We're talking about a dynasty. We're talking about a family. A family that was promised to be the leaders of Israel. What's the horn of salvation? What's going on there? Well, the, the horn in, throughout the Old Testament um, illustrates, you think about um, all the, those crazy creatures in the book of Daniel. They've got various horns on them. And the horn is speaking of strength, of power. And one of the thoughts, perhaps, is that if you got that horn off the animal that had the horn, that's pretty impressive. You mounted those antlers on your wall, you got that impressive beast. So the horn of salvation is God's power to bring salvation, rescue, deliverance. Where has he done it? In the house of his servant, David. Now, Zechariah and Elizabeth are not from the tribe of Judah, where David was from. They're from the tribe of Levi. They're, he's a priest. Only priests can come from Levi. And so, this is a little bit odd. What is happening with what Zechariah is saying? Well, he's going to continue to speak, because he's not just speaking of what's happening with his little boy, or what's happening with his family. He sees national implications. National implications for the people of God. How is he doing this? Raising up the horn of salvation, verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Now, if you have a Bible, look at your Bible, if you have cross-references. Just in this section of the scripture, you probably have overflowing cross-references. Some of the Bibles, they have like cross-references in the middle, or they have them at the bottom. And sometimes if there's too many, there's there's more and more and more, and they're stacked up. I imagine that many of your Bibles that have cross-references... My other one that does have cross-references is just packed because he's speaking of the holy prophets. Which one? Uh Uh-huh. The prophets. Plural. God had already spoken from of old. What did he speak? Verse 71, that we should be saved from our what? Enemies. (laughs) All right. Saved from our enemies. That's great news. And from the hand of all who hate us. That sounds fantastic. Yes, praise Yahweh. Verse 72, to show the mercy that was promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Which covenant? Verse 73, the oath that he swore to father Abraham. He had many sons. I am one of them. So are you. So let's just praise the Lord, right? This, this is all the way back to father Abraham. This is not merely David. You, got, you guys, okay, so just the, let's just orient ourselves. This is happening around... Um, the, the change from before Christ to Anno Domini, okay, B.C. to A.D. David was 1,000 B.C., okay? Abraham, roughly, is 2,000 B.C. We're not talking like, well, my grandpa, when he was a kid in the 30s, we're talking like the other side of history. We're talking way, way back. So God is keeping his word to the house of David He's keeping his covenant that he made all the way back with Abraham, the first Jew, to do what? What did he swear to do? To grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might 
serve him without fear. The picture of service being plucked out, not just to enjoy being rescued, but to be rescued to do something for something. When you're trapped, when you're imprisoned, when you're enslaved, you don't have a choice in what you do. When you're rescued, you now have a choice. And as we see in the scriptures, the best choice is to practice gratitude and thankfulness for the one who rescued you and to say, that person is good and I want to be with that person. I want to be on that person's team. To deliver from the hand of our enemies. My servant without fear, in verse 75, ends this little section in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Not rescued to do whatever we want, rescued to do what is right. Rescued to do what is righteous. Rescued to live in holiness. This theme throughout the scriptures. Now, he moves in verse 76 to talk to his his son. It gets personal here. And you, child. By the way, do you think he... He didn't just like produce this, right? Send it off to a publisher. I kind of... I was thinking about this week. I never thought of this before, but I was thinking, I wonder if he just like sang this song to John every time he went to bed. What if he just sang this? What if John grew up like knowing this because... Elizabeth and Zechariah sang it to him to remind him, and you, child, and you, child. What 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 an interesting way to grow up. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. Now, we've got all kinds of allusions back to the Old Testament. We've got Malachi chapter 3. We've got Isaiah chapter 40. What is this prophet going to do? He's going to go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Who's the Lord? We would think Yahweh. He's going to go before Yahweh. That's exactly what the prophets are talking about. Can I introduce something possibly interesting to you? Look at verse 42. Let's go back a little bit. Mary and Elizabeth have met. The baby leaps in the womb. 42, she exclaimed with a loud cry. Elizabeth does. Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my, my Lord, the mother of my Lord. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Elizabeth has already identified that this little baby growing inside of Mary is in some sense her Lord. Obviously, we see this and we think, yes, of course he's talking about the one God of Israel. But perhaps in this introduction of this new mystery in the New Testament, Zechariah was given by the Holy Spirit insight to say, you will go before the Lord, who is your cousin, to prepare his ways. To do what, verse 77? To give knowledge of salvation to his people. Just like we heard of the horn of salvation in verse 69, we see the knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. In the forgiveness of their sins. What kind of sins? National sins? Like... The golden calf. Individual sins, which had to be atoned for with sacrifices. With the death of animals, wringing off the heads of birds, cutting up these animals, and doing all these horrific to us, right? To our sensibilities. Sacrifices. All of these things just to stay in right relationship with God. And here the promise is, in the forgiveness of their sins. Now this also sounds new. This is, you can locate... Forgiveness of sins in the Old Testament. 
but it is not a, it is not a frequent um, word from the prophets because it's so often connected to national Israel, right? God's people are a nation. They're a people. They're an ethnicity. And so we have trouble thinking of that because look around the room. We have, how, many, how many Jewish people do we have in the room? Jewish blood? All right. I see two hands. Hello, Gentiles. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Right? Now look at our, our hair color, our skin tone, our eye color. Uh, listen to our accents. What our, our native language is. God is gathering a people from all people groups, all the tribes of the world. So the forgiveness of their sins is being offered. And there's this hint that is, mere, is more than just Israel. Why? Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us on high to give light to who? Who needs light? When do you need light? When it's dark. To give light to those who sit in darkness. Now, why are you sitting in darkness? Safer? Not going to fall off a cliff? Don't know where to go? Just stay still? The light has come to those who sit in darkness, and not only darkness, in the shadow of death. Now, what do Jewish people, and praise the Lord, Christians, think about when they hear that phrase? We go to Psalm 23. So I walk through the shadow, the valley of the shadow of death. What is the light going to do? The light does what Proverbs says it does. It gives light to our feet. It's a lamp, right? It shows us our path, the way to go, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Peace. Remember what I asked you at the beginning? What if we went to Ukraine? What if we went to Eastern Congo? What if we went to Somalia? What do we have to offer? News? Now, news might be really good. I, um, I have a hard time thinking of how this would be, but I, I've seen documentaries and I've read about what happened in our country at the end of World War II. VE Day and VJ Day. And just the spontaneous, the crowds everywhere, rejoicing, parades, right? Weeping and crying and all kinds of celebrations going on. Why? Because the war was over. There was peace. The offer of peace would be fantastic news. But it's a lot easier said than done, right? Walking down the street in Ukraine, holes in the sides of buildings, people cowering in fear. We've got good news. Peace. Now, that might be very appealing, but are they going to believe you? Take confirmation. It would take a message that's believable. So, as we get through Zechariah's song, I just want to end by speaking, as God has kept his promises to his people, I want to think about what it means for these Jewish believers to consider the news that they're getting. Little bits, right? Little bits and pieces. Mary, and the very few people that know about that, Elizabeth, and her pregnancy, and her birth, and the, the more people that know about that. But what was the expectation? What was the Savior that they wanted? What kind of Savior did they want? They wanted a Savior who would bring peace. How do you bring peace when you're an oppressed people? You beat the bad guys. You have to beat the bad guys. That's how you get peace. So what did they want? They wanted a Savior who would rescue them. Right? That is totally understandable. 
totally believable. This is the Exodus. Crying out to God, save us. We're slaves. Save us. Send someone. Send a rescuer, a redeemer, a savior. The children of Israel in the book of Judges, they're oppressing us. Send us a savior. Send us a judge. Send us a leader. Well, how, how would their expectations have been shaped? In perhaps the fastest time I've ever told the story of the whole Bible, their views were shaped by their scriptures. And so when they heard of these things, when they longed for these things, when they prayed for these things, when the stinking Romans okay, threw ladies in jail, when they were cursed behind their back, when they were seen as the stormtroopers that they were, what did they want to see happen? They went all the way back to the book of Genesis. All the way back to the very beginning. When even in the, the sin that turned humanity away from God, God promised in speaking to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Now, a head blow, if you're not, if you're not familiar with fighting, if you get hit in the head, it's a worse injury generally than getting hit in your heel. Okay, right? And some of you are like, I tore my Achilles tendon. I'm very sorry about that. That's not very common. If I hit this guy in the head and he hits me in the heel, generally, I'm going to win that battle. I'm going to win that war. Well, one of their mo- the Jewish people's most ancient commentaries on the book of Revelation said, Eve had respect to that seed, the offspring, which is coming from another place. And who is this? What are we supposed to do, the Jewish people? How do we read this? This is Messiah the King. The oldest commentary in the book of Genesis that we have from the Jewish people has an understanding that someone would come from the seed of woman that would rescue. And you even get a hint of the rescuer would not come through it unscathed. There's a hint of a suffering Savior. So it has to be the seed of the woman. We find out through the, the scriptures that it has to be, as God chooses a people, it has to be a descendant of Abraham. And then of his son Isaac, not Ishmael. And then of his son Jacob, not Esau. And then of his son Judah, not the nine million other ones that he had. In Genesis 49, as Jacob is dying, he get Israel, his, his renamed Israel, he gives his sons a blessing and he talks about the scepter not departing from Judah. Who holds a scepter? A ruler, a king. Until tribute comes to him. The obedience of the peoples. This promise, this hint, this promise that from the tribe of Judah would come the rescuer. That narrows it down. How many tribes were there in Israel? Twelve. We've narrowed it down to one. That's pretty good. In that obscure passage with Balaam in the book of Numbers, we see a star and again a scepter. You see how, how as they learned their scriptures there began to be this thread that they could follow. Who is going to come and rescue us? Who is going to come and bruise the head of the serpent? We even get some of that language in a few places in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, in the prophets, talking about stomping on snakes as a symbolism of victory. In Deuteronomy 18, there's a prophet like Moses. God says, I'll send you another prophet like Moses, from among you, from your brothers, 
It is to him you shall listen. And so the Jewish people were looking for a prophet. They were looking for a king. They were looking for a prophet. Some of the Jewish people for a long time thought there might be two saviors coming. A, a prophet one, a king. Then they had other ideas. Maybe it's a priest. Maybe there's three. Maybe there's two. Maybe it's combined in one person. Throughout the, the scripture, the stories, and then also in the Psalms, we see this wording of the anointed one. Right? We see priests are anointed. At least one prophet, Elisha, was anointed. Kings like Saul and David were anointed. And that's where we get the word Mashiach, Messiah. We find out in an obscure psalm that we actually had taught to us in summer 2021, Psalm 110, that there's going to be a priest like Melchizedek. Who is this character? Go back to Genesis and look at Genesis, I think, I believe it's 13, 14. Take a look at this priest like Melchizedek. In the the writings of Isaiah, we see this promise of not just a servant representing the whole people of Israel, but a specific servant representing all of his people who will suffer for their sins to save them. Micah 5.2 tells us that this one will be born in Bethlehem in Judah. I mean, this is getting really specific, people. This person was going to enter Jerusalem on a donkey. Zechariah 9.9. Wow. We've got, is that person on a camel? Not the one. Coming on a war horse? Pretty cool. Not the one. When all of these and much more informed the Israelite people. What were they looking for? They were looking for God to keep his promises to Israel and to David and to Abraham all the way back to the founders of their people, the founders of a religion and a people group and a nation, right? In a, in a very unique way that's not found elsewhere on earth. The Jews and Judaism. It's an amazing thing. And there's so much to, to pick from that. But as we see at the very end of Zechariah's prophecy, go ahead and take a look at verse 79. Look at verse 79. Again, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace, that darkness, that shadow of death, sounds a lot like Isaiah 9 two. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, shadow of death, on them light has shown. So the expectation of light. And it's not as if there was a looking to the heavens only to see if the sun was brighter that day. But there was an understanding that the light given by God, perhaps by the Shekinah glory, when God shows up at the tabernacle in the temple, it's bright and shining. Remember that? They build the tabernacle, they build the temple, and God's presence comes into the tent, into the building, and the priests like take off. They get out of there because they can't be in God's presence like that. Remember when Moses is on top of Mount Sinai and God's like, hey, Moses, let me pin you in the corner over here between these rocks because when I show up, I don't want to blast you off the top of the mountain because that's what happens when God shows up. What is, how does God reveal himself? Not mysteriously, we're just like, oh, there's a light in the sky. Well, almost always a light in the sky accompanied by words, accompanied by proclamation. Light for our darkness. Now, over the years, including even into the 1980s, there have been at least 20 individuals who have claimed to be, be the Messiah of Israel. Okay, like legit, I am the Messiah. Can you imagine saying that? I mean, it's crazy. I'm the Messiah. Wow, what a thing to say. Um, none of them 
have come even close to fulfilling all of those requirements we just went through. Like, ooh, wrong tribe. <laughs> Not born in Bethlehem. <laughs> right? That's what they actually, in the New Testament, some of those who didn't know Jesus was born in Bethlehem, they thought he was from Nazareth. They're like, he can't be the one. So they knew this. They're looking for someone from Bethlehem, from the tribe of Judah, from David's family. None of them have come close to fulfilling even some of the key, clear Old Testament prophecies. In fact, so many Jews alive today don't even expect the Messiah because it's been too long and they've got to find a way to make sense of the scriptures because they missed him. They missed him. He did come. He has come and he is coming again. So what were they looking for? They were looking for a warrior prophet, perhaps a blend of Moses and Joshua, David and Josiah, a warrior reformer to fight the Romans and free God's people. Yeah, yeah, that'll get us, that'll get us excited, riled up. Well, 160 years before Jesus was born, a family in southern Israel rose up and led the people of Israel against their Greek overseers, the Maccabees. They delivered Israel from the Greek overlords in Syria, It was a miraculous thing, almost unheard of. And it's remembered even right now, and I mean right now, in the festival of lights called Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah. It's happening right now. Jesus, by the way, celebrated Hanukkah in John chapter 10. Want to take a look at that? They got freedom, liberty, independence. They minted their own coins with Jewish faces, not Roman or Greek or Persian or Babylonian. They had a king, a high priest. They had the temple. They had the land. They had no prophets. They had no prophets. They hadn't heard from the Lord. The miracle of Hanukkah, which I have no reason to doubt, the the oil lasting for eight days, um, that is an amazing miracle. There's some people that want to dispute that. Whatever the case, there were no words with it. There were no. There was no explanation. There was no voice from on high. There was no Moses coming down the mountain to tell them what God. So the people of Israel recently had had their land back until the Romans. Until the Romans. So you have to understand when we talk about the Christmas story, we don't want a baby. A baby can't fight our battles. So the, the birth doesn't really matter that much as long as they're from the right place. What we need is someone who can do something. A baby can't do anything. You want a full-grown man, a competent, sharp, fearless, muscular leader of men. When do you want him? Yesterday. Let's go. Free us from oppression. From whom? From the Romans. From the others in their society that they hated. But one of the, cl- the clues that we get here in the Gospel of Luke is when Zechariah says, the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. Now, what good is forgiveness of sins without national freedom? Who cares? What, what good is that? Now, you flip it around. What good is national freedom? <laughs> without the forgiveness of sins. But what if, what if you could be free, even under oppression and slavery? What if you could be free from Satan, sin, and death? And what if those free people lived like free people 
and told other oppressed, enslaved people good news. We are not being called to rise up and fight. Our weapons are not of this world. We have, we have what we need from the Spirit. We have the armor of God to fight the battles against not flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. That sounds like good news of great joy for all people. Maybe even all the peoples of the earth. So the last things in your notes there are just things to take home and ponder. What kind of savior do you want? You want a financial savior? That might be helpful this year. Do you need a someone to hire you and save you out of unemployment? Do you need a counselor to save you from an addiction? Those are all valid things to want. But do you know what kind of savior you need when you're all alone pondering your life? What do you need? You need a savior who can save you from yourself. You need a Savior who can save you from a just God who when he looks at my heart sees darkness and rebellion and sin. Unless, unless there's good news. So what kind of Savior do you have this Christmas in 2022? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word from Luke, from Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary from the scriptures, all through the scriptures from the Old Testament to the New Testament. All of these things speak of the good news of great joy. Lord, help us to not only experience it this Christmas, but to proclaim it. That we would see that the last enemy is not Russia or China. It's not an asteroid rotating around our planet. It is death that separates us from you. Lord, we have the words of eternal life that you gave to us. Help us to go and tell everyone with rejoicing as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.